In Matthew chapter 13, we continue in the, in the chronology of Jesus' life. He teaches seven, actually can be eight parables here back to back. Every one of them significant. Every one of them teaching us something about kingdom life, about things that will unfold in the development of his kingdom uh, as warnings, as instruction and guidance. So we've looked at the first four. There's, there's a break now. Uh, after the fourth one, and, and some instruction and some guidance as he enters into the, to the next three. So uh, I'm going to begin with verse 34 of, Ch- of Matthew chapter 13. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Again, what we have said, what we will continue to say is that parables are not simple vacation Bible school stories. Parables are the reality of Jesus trying to teach some of the deepest and most profound things that he could possibly teach. Things that that they'd never heard before. Concepts and ideas that they'd never comprehended before. And Jesus is teaching them very deep things. Now, again, we have to understand. We need to understand. As he shares here, he says, Jesus is going to speak in parables. He also tells us in the scripture that he's going to put his prophetic truth in the mouth of the prophet. So we need to anticipate, as we need to expect, that God has revelation for us. And one of the things that we need to do in this church We need to go back and listen to Amanda's prophecy over this church again. We need to do that periodically in small sections. We need the prophetic truths to be pulled out of all they said so that we can be reminded. Because one of the things that we have to know and have to accept, if we're going to step into God's future, the one that he has planned for us, this new chapter that he has for us, the direction he wants to take us, His prophetic truth has got to become greater than our current circumstance. What he's spoken that will happen has got to become more significant to us than anything that we can currently see. Because we might be discouraged by what we currently see, but just overwhelmed with joy at what he's spoken as truth over us already. So he's he's put that truth in the mouth of the prophet. And as a church, we need to understand that God spoke something to us that would sound very much to us like the parables did to them. Not making perfect sense, not with full understanding, but knowing that what he's telling them is deeply and profoundly true. That's the way he speaks to us as well. Verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came unto him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. So he's saying, would you just tell us what that meant? I'm just so grateful that Jesus takes the time to do this. But as, as a master teacher, now he has the small group. Now he has the disciples in the small group in the house. And he's going to explain to them what the parable means. So in verse 37 he says, He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So we know that the sower is Jesus. But please don't narrow that down so far is to remove the reality of the Holy Spirit because Jesus in his humanity 
could only sow that seed at the hands of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. So please don't minimize even the reality of what it says here because Jesus, when it says the Son of Man, the Son of Man was also totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. That's a certainty. The field is the world. It gives us the picture. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. So he's saying there's a marked end to a time, a time frame. The building of the kingdom, at the the end of the building of the kingdom, this is what will happen. That the tares will be gathered, and the outcome is that they will be cast into the fire. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Okay. This is an odd, odd, odd set of verses. If you notice the order, verse 40 says that the tares are now gone. The tares have been removed from the field. The tares are gone out of the kingdom. Make sense? Dealt with. So how in the world can the next three verses unfold? It says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather... Out of his kingdom, all things that offend. They can't be tares anymore. The tares are already gone. What's he talking about? Who in the world are the angels going to come gather? He's going to be taking something of the kingdom out. All that offends is going to be removed. What he's addressing here, we can best understand if we will go ahead and flip to 1 Corinthians Chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul gives us a much better understanding of what Jesus is saying in that chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with, yeah, I'll just start with verse 9. Paul is explaining that they're not supposed to even be having the discussion about whether we follow Paul or Apollos or someone else. They're having this crisis of leadership and a disagreement about who they're supposed to follow, and Paul is addressing it. So in verse 9 he says, For we are laborers together with God. Apollos and I and everyone are are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. So you're what God grows. You are God's building. You are what he builds. According to, to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But we're still working together. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. So there's a real warning here about how we build the life after salvation. Because he says immediately, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is Jesus Christ. So he's saying, we're ta- he's talking to Christian people here. He's talking to those who, have, are, who are saved, who have the foundation of Jesus Christ. But then he gives this very real warning. This isn't artificial. This isn't, a, this isn't just verbiage. It's not like saying to Melissa, you know, Melissa, be careful when you go outside because the sky is blue. What would you do with that warning? Yeah, okay, yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, didn't know that. Didn't know I needed to be warned about that. But if I, if, I, if I said, you know, be careful when you go outside because it's raining very hard or it's hailing or, you know, be careful crossing the street, 
that's something I can profit. That's a real warning. So when Paul is saying, be careful how you build on this foundation. Why? Because you can build wrong. As Christians, we can build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We can build wrong. And he's, he's, he's stating it here, confessing it here, that there's a real possibility for you and I as Christians to build incorrectly on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to explain it. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. There's going to be a day whenever how you have built on that foundation is going to be reviewed. There's going to be evidence of it. For the day, what day is he talking about? The day when it's our turn to stand at the bema, to stand at the judgment seat. On our day, how we built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, because only saved people are going to be standing there, you know, only believers are going to be standing there. What's going to be reviewed then? Not whether you're lost or saved. That's what got you to the place of review, what's going to happen then is your life, how you lived after you became a Christian, is what's going to be reviewed. How did you build on the foundation? That's what's going to be considered. That's the day he's speaking of. For, for that day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. So gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. Put all that in the fire. What's going to happen to the wood, hay, or stubble? It's going to burn up. So if your work, how you built on the foundation is wood, hay, or stubble, it's going to immediately be consumed, and you're going to be standing there with nothing. What happens to gold, silver, and precious stones in the fire? They're purified. They're refined. They are more precious. They are more clear. The dross and waste is burned away from them. You know, Dale's illustration, he would take his ring off and, and, and hold it up and it would shine. Why would the silver shine? Because everything had been burned out of it. If it hadn't have been purified, it wouldn't shine like it did. The shining is the evidence that everything has been taken care of. Then in verse 14, if any man's work abide, he shall, that he built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet as by fire. So notice the prevalence of the fire in this reality for you and I. Not speaking of lost people, speaking of believers and the fire that we face. And I can't tell you whether that's a literal fire or not. I don't know what that fire is going to be like. I don't know what that judgment is going to be like. I do know that I'm going to be looking into the face of the one whose name is kindness and goodness and love and virtue, forgiveness and healing. I can't make it a frightening moment. I can't make it a terrifying moment. But I do think it's going to be a, an amazing one. I think we're going to be awestruck by it. And I think there's going to be a lot of us standing there saying, I was given so much. I was given the Holy Spirit. I was given access to heaven. I was adopted by my heavenly father. And look what I did with it. Nothing. The sermon a few weeks ago in the warning, don't stand before me empty. Don't stand before me empty-handed. On that day, don't be standing there before me empty-handed. Here's a very real warning. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 13 now to the parable, to the instruction. This isn't actually a parable. The Son of Man, we know who that is, shall send forth his angels, we know who they are, and they shall gather out of his kingdom. So we know now he's gathering us. 
He's gathering believers. He's gathering something that is a permanent attachment to God because it's in the kingdom. He's not taking it outside. The, this is in the kingdom. He's taking it. He says, I want to take everything that offends. What offends God? One thing offends God. One of the things that I know that God hates, I know that offends God, he hates self-effort. He hates our effort. And we have been taught, geared, that it all is about effort. It's all about what we put into it. But we have to understand that, that God is a God of a paradox. Illogical, but absolutely true. That to be victorious, what do we have to do? We have to surrender. To give, we had to lose. To be successful, all the way down the line. Every one of these, illogical. For us to produce a lot, in our world is, well, if you're going to produce a lot, you have to work hard. And Jesus is saying, no, if you're going to produce much, you have to learn to rest. Why? Because as long as I try, I won't let him do it through me. And my work will be the evidence of me and my striving and will look just like me trying hard, which is what the world has determined about God that they don't like. Instead of the reality of that says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, faithful is he who calleth you, who will also do it. No matter what he's called you to, he's going to do it. He wants to be the evidence of himself. He wants the world to be able to look at you and see him. Not because you're trying to act like him, but because you've let him behave in you to do what only he could do in the first place. We want to act like Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that's sickening. What I want you to do is receive the Holy Spirit so that you become the, the very natural evidence of who I am. I've used the illustration. It's not a great one. But if I have a glove laying on this podium, what do you expect the glove alone to be able to do? Nothing. But if I put my hand in it, now you can't see my hand, but the glove becomes a, a perfect expression of that which is inside of it. Demonstrating my hand's power, my hand's strength, my hand's agility, and becoming the expression of what my hand is capable of doing. You lay me on that table, on this podium, by myself, what am I capable of doing? Nothing. But you let the Holy Spirit come and fill us, we become the full, perfect expression of what God is capable of doing. That's why we can't take physical healing off the table. That's why I can't take great transformation off the table. I can't take great reflection of God, great wisdom of God off the table, because if I will let him fill me, I become the perfect expression of, of all that he's capable of doing. And he will do it unless I tell him no. I tell him no, he won't, because I have free will. But if I don't tell him no, he's going to live as the full expression through me. And that's what he's looking for. What offends him is when you and I try to go out and be God without him. That offends him. That's my self-effort. Trying to be good without the one whose name is good. Trying to love without the one whose name is love. Trying to be kind without the one whose nature is kindness. 
Faithful is he who calleth me who will also do it. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But what? Christ lives in me. It's him. It's always been about him. He went away saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so that you can continue to be the evidence of what I started. The Holy Spirit that was doing this for three and a half years, I want to give that Holy Spirit to anybody who will take him and, that, and, and you will now become the, the expression of what God is about, what he wants to do. What offends him is when we take that on ourselves. What's going to be done with that wood, hay, or stubble? It's going to be put in the fire. It's going to be tried. It's going to be removed. Why? He says here in the end of this, and I'll conclude with, with the way he concludes it. And it says, you'll be cast into a furnace of fire. That's not a lake of fire. Notice, that's a furnace, purifying. She'll be placed in a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Why would we wail and gnash our teeth? The evidence of what we didn't do, what, you know, it's, it's, it's like I'm standing there saying, why in the world did I refuse the Holy Spirit? Why in the world didn't I, didn't, did I make something so insignificant, so important, that I would say no to God? What do you think the rich young ruler is going to do if he was, happens to be standing before God and, and says, you know, back there when Jesus said, if you'll sell all that you have and give it to the poor, come take up your cross and follow me and I'll give you riches in heaven. What part of that did you not get? They're weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth is the picture of what happened at, at a wedding when, they, when the invited guests were placed in positions of honor based on how close they were to the bridegroom. And the ones who had never drawn close to the bridegroom were put in the outer darkness where they were weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth. They were at the wedding, but they weren't the honored guests because they didn't know the intimacy with the bridegroom. That's the, the intimacy is clearly taught, and I'm not going to go into all that. Intimacy is formed by our understanding of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus established for us to be intimate. And then verse 43, it says, Then, after that, shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who have ears to hear, let them hear. What happens in us when all the dross is burned away? Purity, and then we shine. We become that evidence because it was burned away from us. Now we have to understand that God placed on this side of that day the ability to get rid of that dross, to get rid of that impurity out of our life, he gave us a mechanism on this side of that day so that we can stand before him. That, that wouldn't be very kind of God to say, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you accountable for that on some day and I'm going to burn it away from you, but you're just going to have to live with it until that day. And he didn't do that. He said, I'm going to give you the mechanism. I'm going to give you the way by which you can get rid of that stuff now. You can ask for forgiveness according to, to John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. Confess it, and he says, I will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He's speaking that to Christian people. If you'll confess it, if you'll bring it before me, I will forgive it, and I will remove it as if it were never there. I will cleanse you, clean you from all unrighteousness. He gave us on this side, there it's going to be by fire. Here it's going to be by repentance. And again, that's not confessing what I did wrong. That's coming into agreement with the mind of Christ and believing about myself, believing about others, what God is, what is coming from God's mind as the source of my thought rather than me as the source of my thought. He gave us the means on this side. That's why we can't ever stop teaching repentance. 
is most churches have stopped teaching repentance because they, they just think, well, people don't want to say what they did wrong. Well, that's not repentance in the first place. I wish I, if I had time, I'd put it up on the board and get you to read what Greek says about repentance. It does not say to change what you're doing. It means to change your mind. Paul repented on the road to Damascus. He was going there to kill Christians. He encountered Jesus. He repented. And the new source of his thought was no longer that Jesus was a heretic and was, he was out to destroy him. It says he left there preaching and teaching Jesus. Because he repented. He had a new source of thought about who Jesus was. Saw it completely differently. That's repentance. Not confessing that I did something wrong, standing in front of the church and say I've sinned. That's not repentance. It's saying, I, I'm changing my mind. I'm only going to agree with the mind of God. And I believe about this, what God says, and nothing else. And then we shine. We can shine on this side of that moment if we repent. If we confess. If we seek the forgiveness. We can shine on this side. Because getting rid of that dross is going to make us more lustrous. Make us shine. That's why God said spoke beauty over the church because we're, we're designed to be a people who radiate this love of God and the joy of God and the shining of God and where God becomes real to other people. That's what we're designed to be. But that only comes because we're able to stand before God, confess our sins, let him cleanse us of all unrighteousness, repent, change our mind, have a new source of thought, and then we can shine and radiate that glory of God. Not later, but right now. What he's saying happens then can happen in this moment. It doesn't have to wait until that final day. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, amazing passage and the revelation, Lord, that you bring us. It's, it excites us and it just brings us joy to know that you have allowed us on this side of that moment to come before you and, and seek forgiveness and that you, you're faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to remove it from us. And we just thank you, Lord, for it, that, that you will wash our feet every time we come having gotten them dirty by where we walked, that you said you'd wash them time and time again. But that's even hard for us to imagine that the creator of the universe would bend to wash our feet. But Lord, you've shown it, you've done it. And we're amazed by it. But you wanted us to know something. You wanted us to know that you would cleanse us every single time. Not that we could sin freely, God forbid, as Paul said, but that every time that we do, under your conviction and your revelation, we can come to you and you'll cleanse us every single time. We thank you for that truth so that we can shine, so that we can be a church that is, demonstrates the splendor and the beauty and the magnificence of who you are and not carry the sin and the heaviness of the iniquity that's in our life. So we thank you, Lord, tonight for this truth. We thank you, Lord, for the new chapter that you're turning. I, I don't know what it's going to look like. I just know, Lord, it's coming and I'm anxious to read it. I'm anxious to see what you're fixing to do. I don't have a clue what it is, but I am excited. And I pray, Lord, that the excitement of this body would grow in anticipation of what you're about to do. We speak it in Jesus' name. Amen.